Welcome to episode two of The Current Podcast. I'm Ryan, and today I'll be joined by Chelsea Sexton, EV advocate and advisor. Um, if you haven't checked out episode one, uh, we were joined by Roger Atkins, our host for Revolution 2020, and we discussed the latest trends in e-mobility and what to expect in the next decade. So Chelsea Sexton, she starred in the documentary Who Killed the Electric Car alongside Tom Hanks and Mel Gibson but more recently has been a lead presenter on the YouTube show Fully Charged, which I highly recommend you check out. Chelsea was also a host at Revolution Connected New York, and she'll be joining us on September 8th for Revolution 2020. Welcome, Chelsea. Um, I'm really glad that you could join us today for the second episode of uh, the current podcast. Um, It would be really good if you could introduce yourself a little bit before we get started. I'm Chelsea Sexton, and I'm really just a girl that plays with cars. <laughs> yeah, I actually see the playing with cars thing quite a lot on your, on your social media. Um, when you say cars, you mean all kinds of cars. You don't just mean electric cars. I primarily, I, well, I will play with all, all kinds of cars, but I do primarily mean trying to get more electric cars on the road and electric vehicles in general. So electrified transportation, basically anything that currently runs on liquid, making it run on electrons. So it's not a pro-car stance, but it is a pro-electrification stance. Okay, I see. That's quite interesting. I saw that the Who Killed the Electric Car movie actually came out in 2006. Yes. And for me, that's been a while. For me, that's quite interesting because I just don't think that, that many people were talking about it back in 2006. But you get this blockbuster movie coming out featuring, you know, Tom Hanks and Mel Gibson and yourself. Um, yeah, I find it crazy that a movie came like, like that came out in 2006, but there doesn't seem to have been a boom uh, as much as there has been maybe in the last couple of years. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it, we, we made the movie specifically because no one really knew the story and because no one was talking about it. And for a while when the first generation of EVs ended and they were being questioned things, we thought, oh, PBS or Frontline, you know, some documentary series will come tell this story, even if they think we're the crazy ones. But no one ever really did, which is why we made that first movie. And I think, I mean, to this day, I still get people almost every day that are still discovering it because it kind of comes and goes from Amazon or Netflix <laughs> or something. So people are still discovering it. And it helped quite a bit in raising awareness, which is really fun for us because we thought we'd just make copies for our parents and move on. So it's mm-hmm. been really exciting. Uh, but it was it came out at a time where nobody was building electric cars. So 2006, you know, even things like the Nissan Leaf and the Chevy Volt didn't start to appear until the end, really, of, of 2010 uh, at the earliest. So it, we had to wait a few more years and make another movie <laughs> before we really started to see more EVs on the road. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know for sure. I, I actually, so I did a little bit of research about the General Motors EV1. Um, because it's a car that I actually hadn't heard of before. Mm-hmm. And I saw, I think, a YouTube video um, of you on Fully Charged, maybe, um, at a trade show of some kind with the EV1. And I thought it yes, was... Yes, that just happened. Yeah, yeah. And it was super stylish. And I was kind of thinking, wow, this for its time. Because it actually didn't come out in the 90s. Yeah, uh, mid-90s. Yeah, it was really ahead of, ahead of the game, I guess. Um, but then it, then, I, then it kind of comes to me, well this is a car I'd never heard of. So what was wrong with it? 
well, that's why we made a movie. Yeah, yeah exactly. I guess that's, <laughs> the movie kind of covers that in some ways. It uh, kind of does. I mean, it, yeah. it was a small, it was a small volume program at the time, only just over 1100 were built. So yeah. it wasn't a massive program. It was known in the market areas in which it was deployed, which was really yeah. just a couple of states here, California and Arizona. Um, so even here, most people had never heard of one, but especially since the first film, it's kind of taken on a fairly iconic role in the EV vernacular and it's considered the first modern electric car because of course EVs have been around for more than 100 years but the EV one really kind of was the demarcation line of the of the modern era of Mm -hmm. EVs and and it continues to impress people that it had you know up to 160 miles of range when it was killed and we had a bunch of technologies that were we take for granted now were pioneered on that car so it was, and it's really unusual to find one and to get to bring it somewhere. So it was unusual and iconic to be able to bring it to the fully charged live show and let people come see it up close without having to go to a museum to do it. Yeah, I, I figure, and it's making me think maybe we should have inquired about having it at Revolution, but maybe perhaps it's too late for that now. <laughs> well, there will be another Revolution. And certainly the U.S. ones. It's harder to find an EV1 outside yeah. of the U.S. It's yeah. possible, but it's difficult. I think that would be super cool because I, yeah, I think that people take it for granted a little bit that electric cars are doing kind of well now, but there's right. it's actually been, it's, it's not something that's just happened. It's taken a lot of work from a lot of different people. And as you mentioned, yes. I think I saw the first, there was an electric car before there was actually a gas-powered car. Um, but yes. obviously that, that never actually obviously came to anything. So I kind of find it interesting. People, yeah, just think that it happened in the last couple of years. But actually people have been campaigning for this for such a long time. And there's obviously there's still a lot of work to go. Yes. And then, I mean, in the early 1900s, there were more electric cars on the road than gas cars, certainly yeah. in major cities like New York. And only around you know, 1912 to 17 or so did gas cars start to take over, mostly yeah. when the electric starter was invented. Yeah, I, I guess it's also possible that maybe people were just not aware of the fact that gas-powered cars were actually really bad for the environment. I don't know if that, that might have something to do with it. it they just they seemed more convenient at the time, yeah. understandably, because once you didn't know, you know, the reason EVs were more popular is because they were clean and they were quiet and you didn't have to crank them. So yeah. they were actually really popular with women. They were for kind of the first chick cars. And then gas cars kind of took over when the electric starter came out, so you don't have to crank them anymore. And then they had sort of the, quote, unlimited range yeah. kind of idea. And especially in the U.S. and sort of the freedom of the open road as this country was developed relatively recently, gas cars took over. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, cool. I will, that's kind of not really that related, but I, I, I keep referring to fully charged because I actually kind of binge watched quite a lot of the episodes. Um, oh, how cool. Yeah, well, the thing is, we've been following uh, Fully Charged on our social media, on our EV Box social media pages for a while, so I kind of knew a little bit about you, what you guys were doing. Um, mm-hmm. But I saw you had a specific episode on autonomous cars, and it yes. made me think it's autonomous vehicles and EVs are completely different things, but they've kind of gone through the revolution at the same time. Um, in terms of popularity and do you think they kind of are intertwined in some way to the point where autonomous cars in the future will not be gas powered they'll completely be uh, kind of electric vehicles or, or is or is it not really that close of a connection it, it's up to us really um, 
I mean, you're right that they tend to be paired together a lot, although autonomous cars are not nearly as far along as EVs no, are, sure. certainly not from a deployment standpoint. But the way that I describe it is that they are not codependent, but they are co-enabling. Okay. So autonomous vehicles don't have to be electric. And certainly, particularly the German automakers, were starting down the path that they wouldn't be electric. They would make gas cars that were autonomous, and that's certainly possible. Some of the technologies of electrification, drive-by-wire, brake-by-wire, things like that, are beneficial to automated um, development as well. So, you know, it's nice if they go together, but I think what it will really come down to is a regulatory policy decision, because the advantages or the benefits that are promised with autonomous vehicles are increased access to, to populations that don't currently have a lot of mobility, yeah. you know, easing of congestion, we'll see. But all the things that are promised could very much end up creating more vehicle miles or kilometers traveled. And mm -hmm. if those things have tailpipes, that's a bad idea. <laughs> so I think ultimately the policymakers will step in and say, that's great, but especially if you have the opportunity to increase miles traveled, they have to be zero emission miles. And so I think that will be mandated at some point that that autonomous vehicles are also electric. Okay. Well, yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I do think that the two of them kind of enable each other to be better in some ways. Um, but as you, as you mentioned, kind of EVs are really in a good place right now, whereas I would say autonomous vehicles are still quite a few years away from, you know, whether it's policy or whether it's just safety. Um, I do think that they have quite a long way to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the complexities are very, very different between the two yeah. technologies. Yeah. Okay. Well, you, you mentioned a little bit about policy there and I mm -hmm. was quite interested in kind of North America in particular here, in particular here, sorry, yes. and especially the U S because obviously, you know, in Europe, um, the European union makes a lot of decisions in relate, you know, in relation to electric cars. Um, and, you know, obviously there's still national decisions being made, but in the U.S. you've got a country which is so big and states have such different ways of doing things. I was wondering whether, you know, whether there are things being done on the national level or, or, or whether it's still really at a state level uh, in the U.S. It's an excellent question, especially in this particular political climate that we have. Yeah. <laughs> um, historically, so, you know, in the 90s, the center of gravity for EV policy was CARB, the Air Resources Board that has the zero emission mandate that forced EVs in the first place, back and forth. Um, you know, during the, primarily during the Obama administration, but a little bit before that, the federal government really started to put some energy toward it in the form of incentives and manufacturing loans and grants and things like that. And some of those things are still on the books. We still have a federal tax credit. We also mm -hmm. have a president that is not particularly in favor of electric cars mm -hmm. and regularly raises the notion of killing that credit mm -hmm. and is trying to water down regulations around fuel economy and things. And so we're, we're very heavily in this kind of bizarre quote, fight between the federal government and the California government, who still gets to make its own rules and therefore still has the ZEV program. And it remains to be seen how that shakes out, in all honesty. It's kind of been stagnant for the last couple of years. Um, in some ways, we're a little surprised that more damage hadn't been done sooner. We kind of expected the, the tax credits and things to go away pretty much from the moment of his inauguration. But it hasn't, and that's a good thing. At the same time, we're stuck in this kind of wait and see what happens mode. Meanwhile, California continues to push forward, and about a dozen other states follow California's lead in terms of EV policy. So it is, it, 
doesn't have to be driven by the states, but the end result is that it basically is it being driven being by the states. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and yeah, you mentioned California. Mm -hmm. I, from what I've seen, California just seems to be way ahead of anybody else in the U.S. at the moment. Yeah, it, it, ha it is um, for a variety of reasons. In part, the reason that the EV program exists here, the ZEV program, it exists because back in the 70s, California became the one state that was allowed to make its own air quality policy okay. because we had such bad smog and things along the way. And so CARB has unique regulatory capacity that no other state has. The other states have the option of following either CARB or the Environmental Protection Agency, the federal government, and picking and choosing. And that's why I say about a dozen states follow California with respect to EV policy. Yeah because those are the ones that have chosen to do so. And so, it, you know, California has unique regulatory power, but other states also can use the benefit of that. And that's why those states tend to be leading. But California also, by virtue of having created this policy, has been working on electric cars for <laughs> 20, 30 years, basically. So, you know, the, the ZEV program was passed in 1990, um, or was created in 1990. So, it's been some time of getting people used to the idea of EVs and California tends to have a fairly progressive market, fairly tech oriented, somewhat higher income. And so there's a whole bunch of layers that kind of come together to create the fact that California has been the lead. We kind of joke it's the Norway of the U.S. Oh, a little yeah. bit. Um, but also, you know, EV policy in Norway came about in, around similar timing by virtue of the old EV programs. And that policy happened to still be in place when new EVs came, which allowed them to kind of take off as a market themselves. So a lot of the benefits that we're seeing now were created years and years and years ago when there were very few EVs and folks just kind of wanted to get it going a little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess you've got to start somewhere. And as you say, other states in the US are beginning to take off a little bit as well. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm seeing more enthusiasm. But, you know, as much as things look rosy, we are not nearly as far ahead as you guys are. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's kind of, that kind of goes into what I was going to say next, which was obviously you spend quite a lot of time in Europe as well. Mm -hmm. And I was interested when you attend trade shows and things like that, conferences, when you speak to kind of EV fans, I guess you could say advocates, do they tend to say the same things or maybe they have maybe in Europe, they have more advanced um, knowledge about EVs or maybe they just have different kind of questions. Uh, have you noticed anything like that? Um, I would say that one of the cool things that I like about this this industry is that around the world, from you know the U.S. to Norway to Holland to New Zealand to Costa Rica, it's being driven by sort of individual happy warriors. <laughs> if we're honest about it, the automotive industry is really kind of ambivalent about this. They wouldn't really love to be doing EVs if given the choice but external policies leading them in that direction as it needs to. But mostly it's been the enthusiasts and the advocates and whether it's individual drivers or sort of happy warriors within companies like EVbox mm -hmm. pulling the industry to do this. And I love that dynamic. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that the public has to lead, but it's great that they are. And every single time someone buys an EV, whether it's a Nissan Leaf or a Tesla, they think they're helping to co-create the success of electrification. We're all mm -hmm. in this together. And that's kind of a neat community-oriented thing. Um, where I find some of the conversations differ between, say, the U.S. and Europe, uh, Europe is unabashed about talking about climate change. Mm -hmm. We don't really talk about that here. Um, it's never been a fair, I mean, 
we talk about it in some circles, but in terms of promoting EVs, it's never been the most effective messaging. Anything environmental has not been the most effective messaging when it comes to EVs, whereas it's a thing that's taken for granted in Europe. And in certain parts of Europe, there, you know, the conversations are about the ethics of battery mining and yeah. recycling and all of those. It's much further ahead. So it's not that they're different topics than happen here, but mostly we only talk about those things in the super nerdy circles ourselves. They're not stuff you hear at, at public it's conferences. Not, it's often. not, yeah, exactly. It's not kind of like a mass, you know, yeah. it's, it's really just a niche, I guess. Uh, right. In, in America. Okay. Oh, that's quite interesting to hear. I mean, we, we talk about North America and Europe all the time when it comes to this. Mm-hmm. If there are two continents that really are taking a step in that direction, it is those. But I, but I also read a lot about China, for example, really wanting EVs to be the future there. Um, do you know anything about that? Or Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, obviously China has become basically the fastest growing EV market in the world. They also have a very different regulatory climate than mm-hmm. either of the other regions, which is in part why they're set aside a little bit. It's not that we talk about U.S. and Europe because they're a bit more similar in the types of cl- culture and policies that they have, governmental organization. China is obviously somewhat different. So when China's government says we're going electric, <laughs> they're going electric. They're and that's electric. all there is to it. <laughs> so it is a little bit different. Um, and I, I mean, I love that they're going electric, but I do tend to have to battle a bit of complacency. I hear all the time, China's going EV and therefore it's going to take the rest of the world with them. And in the long term, that may end up being true, but there is not yet much cross-pollination of product. So China's domestic automakers are making cars for China right now. Mm -hmm. Very few of them are really trying to do that much business outside of China yet. So they can go electric all day long and not necessarily have much of an impact on the other regions, except for potentially a little bit of, of component economies of scale, so driving down the cost of certain components maybe. But until Chinese companies want to start selling cars outside of China, the effect worldwide will be more limited. And we're see, we see a little bit of it in mostly what I describe as Trojan horse brands. So Jaguar, Land Rover is owned by a Chinese company, but it's a familiar brand to the other regions. And so no one thinks of them as a Chinese car, but some of the actual Chinese brands, you know, if Cherry comes in and tries to sell a car, that will get a different reaction than if it's a Jaguar Land Rover owned by Cherry. Okay. Yeah, I do. I found it interesting. Yeah, that's strange when you say China are making electric cars for China, but if they are so ahead of everybody else, you'd kind of expect them to kind of monopolize other markets in a way. Um, but they clearly don't see a huge benefit of doing that at this point. But as you yeah, I mean, they have enough of a market there. And I think they will. And there's, there's small moves to try to establish elsewhere. But it remains to be seen how quickly the Americans, or Europeans for that matter, will accept Chinese cars. I mean, it took the Japanese automakers 20 years to be seen as credible and normal in this country. And it took 20 years for the Koreans to do the same thing when Hyundai and Kia and those guys wanted to come in. So it, it remains to be seen if Chinese automakers get through that path any faster. And certainly we have the extra layer right now of our politics and and a fairly anti-China sentiment in general, tariff conversations and things. And so that would obviously also have some effect. Do you think that, how much of an impact do you think the charging infrastructure has in terms of the EV industry growing? Or do you kind of see 
the two, you know, charging infrastructure just following electric cars? Or do you really think that electric cars need the charging infrastructure to be better in order for the industry as a whole to grow? I think it is important, but also overblown in some ways. Okay. Um, I mean, I think we're right now, we're, we're in this mode of really rampant fast charging. You know, faster is always better, more of them on every street corner. And all of those things can be true. I advocate for the right speed of charging in the right places based yeah. on the dwell time involved. Um, and it is, it's incredibly useful from a psychological and marketing standpoint to have some public infrastructure out there, even in places where the vast majority of charging happens at home. So on one hand, it's an educational issue of teaching people that charging a car is closer to charging a phone than putting gas in a car. It's, it's more of a grazing model than a gorging model most of the time. You, mm -hmm. you fill up at home and then you might graze a little bit during the day when you're out and about, but you're not really driving all the way to empty and filling all the way to full most of the time in an EV. So it's very different than a gas car. That said, from a psychological comfort standpoint of what if I want to take that road trip or what if I forget to plug in the night before, you need to have some public charging out there. But I also find, you know, there's some, there's some goofy nuances. One of the things that we've learned even since the 90s, is that we didn't just need more chargers, we needed more and better signage. Mm -hmm. And it's even worse now because all the EV drivers have apps to find the chargers. But if you're not yet an EV driver, you don't yet have the apps. And so they drive past chargers all day long and just don't realize that those are chargers because they're used to looking for petrol stations with a certain style of pump and a certain style of signage. And so there's lots more chargers out there already than most of the non-EV driving public understands. So it is important, but there's more of it that's available in many places than people tend to think. And that's also on us to educate them about it, but also to consider you know, signage aspects and those sorts of things that are cheaper and easier in some ways, but are require more thought to do. Yeah, that's actually a good point because I think the other day I was, I was maybe in an Uber or something and I was speaking to the, the driver and he said, uh, you know, what do you do? And I said, well, I, you know, have you seen all the public charging stations uh, for electric vehicles around Amsterdam? And, you know, to me, it's so obvious because I know exactly what I'm looking for and I know exactly what they look like. But then I realized, and he said, no, I, you know, I, I, I haven't seen these things. And I said, well, they're there, you know, they, you know, that's, it's an EV charger. And yeah, it, it kind of ties into what you're saying there. People don't know what, the, what it is. And if you, if you are an EV driver, you will know what it is. But if you're not, you won't. And, right. you know, you're, how are you going to attract more people to drive electric if they don't know what they're looking for? Right. And, and, you know, petrol pumps are really standardized in terms of what they look like. And we have a million different EV charging designs. And in some ways, that's how each of you are competing with each other to make yeah. prettier ones and <laughs> nicer looking ones and easier to use ones and all of those things. And that's, that's another hurdle that will have to be crossed as well, which you guys are also farther along on, is the interoperability of these different chargers and networks. Because especially in the US, but, but elsewhere, the notion of having multiple different memberships and key fobs and all of those things is really frustrating to the average EV driving public or potential EV driving public. You know, the, the super nerds and early adopters might be willing to tolerate it, but when I think about you know, trying to get my mother or my grandmother or somebody into a car, you know, they're not gonna have the same appetite to tolerate some of those frustrations. No, I agree. I, you know, when I think about it, it's just so easy for you to go and fill up um, your car with gas, but you, you're, with, the, with the whole membership thing, 
um, you are potentially relying on people having several memberships. But then maybe it's about companies like EVbox um, actually working with their competitors to make it easier for EV drivers, um, which obviously we've already started seeing. The competitive nature of some of the companies have made them more or less willing. So we really appreciate the few companies like EVbox that want to help drive this rising tide conversation because at the end of the day, if the EV drivers are not having a good experience, they're not going to use the chargers and nobody is going to be successful, whether it's the charging company or the site host or the automaker. So we all have to focus on what is the best experience for the users at the end of the day, not who's buying our charging subscriptions. Yeah. Um, you were obviously the host for Revolution Connected in New York. Yes. Um, it's great fun. Yeah. No, I, I saw a lot of photos. It looked amazing. I wish I was there. Um, and I, yeah, I, obviously we have Revolution uh, back in Amsterdam on September 8th after we unfortunately had to postpone it. You know, you've had a big part in, in Revolution in the last few years. This one will hopefully be the biggest one yet. Um, and yeah, what are you looking forward to? What do you expect to be different this year maybe? Um, yeah. Well, uh, the one thing I have learned is that there's always surprises involved. So <laughs> I have only a limited understanding of what to expect, but I am certainly looking forward to seeing everybody again. It's it's a really unique experience and it's it's fun for me to see people become surprised because it's an unusual thing for one company to host a conference that is not all about that one company. Yeah. And so it's fun for me to go through the day and it's really, it's especially with the Americans that attend because we tend to be more cynical and all day <laughs> long, all I hear is when is the sales pitch coming? When is the commercial coming? Like when are they going to get up and try to sell us chargers? <laughs> <laughs> and of course that doesn't happen at all. And it's really refreshing. And so it's fun for people to, to for me to watch people have that experience. Um, but we're also introducing a debate component this year that I'm going to yeah. help co-host, which I, I'm fascinated to see how that goes and see if I can't help rile up the audience to participate a little more. Because we tend to be a passionate people, us EV folks. <laughs> so <laughs> it can only be fun. And this will be my first revolution as I only joined EV Box in May, but I've seen a lot of videos, you know, I've heard a lot of things. Um, so I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, you're in for a treat. Yeah, and I'm actually looking forward to seeing the mix of people who are new to the EV industry and then those who have been, you know, working or enthusiastic about the industry for, for a long time and seeing, you know, the dynamic between those groups. Well, it's useful to mix up the groups anyway and, and have some of the newer, younger people to the industry inject their energy and the older veteran, but also sometimes more cynical and worn out folks. <laughs> you know, they, they bring some of the wisdom, but sometimes we're a little tired in the moment. And so it's nice to, you know, mix them up and, and let each side benefit from the other one. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, okay, well, I think I've only got one more, uh, one more thing, which is actually for you, uh, and that's, is there anything anything in particular that you'd like to uh, plug in uh, in this podcast? I think this is going to be a recurring segment of the podcast. Uh, is there anything you're working on at the moment, or is there anything that you're going to be up to in the next month that we can look out for? No, I don't. I I, I lack a self promotion gene, and it always feels a little bit gross to do. So so no, I don't have anything particular to plug. Although I will again give a shout out to my fully charged brethren and recommend you all go watch all of their videos. <laughs> Yeah. You can leave mine aside, but go watch theirs. <laughs> um, and otherwise, I can't wait to come and play again. Thank you so much, Chelsea, for joining me today. Um, Thank you for letting me crash your party. <laughs> <laughs>